Jeremiah 9, we're going to begin in verse 25, but we're going to look mainly at chapter 10 this morning. You'll see why we're starting in verse 9, or I'm sorry, verse 25 of chapter 9. Jeremiah 9, verse 25. This is God's word. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Learn not the ways of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Ephaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. Thus shall you say to them, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob. For he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Gather up your bundle from the ground, O you who dwell under siege. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I am slinging out the inhabitants of the land at this time, and I will bring distress on them that they may feel it. Woe is me because of my hurt. My wound is grievous. But I said, truly, this is an affliction and I must bear it. My tent is destroyed and all my cords are broken. My children have gone from me and they are not. There is no one to spread out my tent again to set up my curtains. For the shepherds are stupid and do not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, they have not prospered and all their flock is scattered. A voice, a rumor, behold, it comes. A great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah a desolation, a lair of jackals. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in a man who walks to direct his steps. 
Correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Pour out your wrath on the nations that know you not, and on the peoples that call not on your name, for they have devoured Jacob. They have devoured him and consumed him, and have laid waste his habitation. This is God's word to us. Let's pray. Father, would you now open our eyes and ears, Lord, that our hearts may hear. We don't want to just externally conform. We want our hearts to be transformed, to be changed. We acknowledge this is a work only you can do, and so we look to you in faith. As we hear from your word now, you would do that very work. For your glory we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Florida is one of those places where you rarely run into people who are from Florida. Many of you have moved from other places of the country, and, or you've moved maybe multiple places. You've lived in different parts of the country, and you know when you do this, that people in different parts of the country have different ways of doing things and saying things and, and uh, just kind of doing life. If you've lived in another country, some of you have, or some of you may be from another country living here, you've discovered the same differences. And what happens is we, we often quickly adapt to the differences without knowing it. We pick up local phrases like you skies, if you're in some parts of the country, or all y'all. If you're from God's, I mean, from the South, um, if you're from there, you would say that. Uh, you, you might learn to wave to people, or if you're from the South and you move to Florida, you might realize that no one waves uh, to anybody. Uh, people do things differently. You might learn to eat new food, different food, in a different way. You change, you adapt. And while we all aren't, aren't, aren't all adaptive in the same way, we don't all adapt in the same way, and maybe less so as we get older, we do so without noticing it often. When we, our family, moved back from Cyprus, we noticed there were a number of things that we kind of picked up in our time there that we did differently from how our friends and family did back here. And we had to be intentional to adapt back. It was the way we used to do things, but we had become, we'd come to do you know, things differently. We we, we don't stop for petrol anymore. We stop for gas. You know, when you call a restaurant and you ask for a takeaway order, they have to think about it because that's what you said there, and it took me a long time to learn that, but now it's a to-go order. Uh, you know, you learn to, to, to not call oregano oregano, as you said there, and, and you, so you, you change and you adapt, but you have to be intentional about it. In the same way, we also adapt and transform, conform, to the world around us without knowing it. It's the water that we swim in. And this is a, a, a response that we do spiritually. Over and over in Scripture, we're warned not to do this. It's not just a Romans 12 thing. We see it all the way back in the Old Testament, even in this passage in Jeremiah, not to be like the world around us, not to become conformed to the world. The people of God were called out to be separate. They were to be different, not for the sake of being different, but for the sake of being holy unto the Lord. And so this is a battle that the people of God have faced. This is not new to us. This is not unique to us. But it is a battle that we continue to face. It's part of living in the world. We're in it, but we're not of it. 
This is what was happening in part to Judah. They had become like the nations around them. There was no difference. You couldn't tell a difference between someone who was a part of Judah and someone who was a part of the Canaanite nations that surrounded them. They were no longer set apart. And so in this passage, this portion of the sermon, and we've been in the temple sermon or what's called the temple sermon, this is the end of it, or it may be a separate sermon, we can't be sure, uh, but it's, it's clearly got a, kind of a closing feel to it. So I kind of think it's the closing of Jeremiah's sermon in the temple. But in it, we see him address this whole idea of not conforming to the world. And the reason I started in verse 25 is to, it, it sets the stage for what he deals with in chapter 10 and uh, the whole idea of, of idolatry. But he uses circumcision, circumcision as kind of a preface to explain how they had done something externally, but their hearts were unchanged. And in this, he has this, you noticed it when we read, this kind of antiphonal back and forth between how he presents the gods, the idols of the nations, and the true God, the God of heaven and earth, Yahweh. And he compares and contrasts, in a sense, to mock how foolish it is to worship idols. He shows that the God who created life and all that exists reigns. And he shows that idols that are made out of wood and stone will meet corruption. And his point here is to show the utter absurdity of worshiping idols. It's just nuts. And he does this by explaining how an idol is even made. But before we get to that, these words of introduction show this external conformity that, 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 that Judah had participated in. And the way he shows this is he mentions these other countries that were practicing circumcision as well. These other countries were countries that did not walk with the Lord, even though all but Egypt were descendants of Abraham. And so you can understand how the custom uh, may have uh, been passed down. But it was spreading out among the other nations. Many were doing this. It had become common in this time and place in the world. But the point of circumcision wasn't about the physical act. We see this in the New Covenant. You've heard probably met people that you say, you know, are you a Christian, are you a believer? And they say, oh, I've been baptized. That, that wasn't my question. Are you, are you a believer? Do you trust in Christ? You know, it's, it, it's not the physical act, the sign of the covenant. Jesus spoke of this idea of being separate from the world in John 15. If the world hates you, he said, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. James in chapter 4 explains it. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. And John in his first epistle says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Those New Testament passages, which are likely more familiar to us, uh, are not new. (laughs) This wasn't a new idea of God's that came with New Testament revelation. This is all repeated from the Old Testament. This whole idea of not becoming like the world, loving the world. God has called us as his people out to be separate. 
how we live, how we think, how we believe, and that's how we act. Judah was described as being uncircumcised in heart. That is, the circumcision meant nothing to them. All the external conformity. They still practiced temple worship. They still gave money. They still gave their loud prayers and boasted like the religious do. But as we read in, in the, the psalm that we sang this morning from Psalm 51, this is, this, this is the psalm of David, his psalm of repentance. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. To paraphrase the prophet Micah, you know what God wants from you. Be fair with others and show people mercy and walk humbly with your God. It's, it's, it's that simple. Do this. And yet, the people of God had turned religion into something to be proud of, something to put their confidence in external measures. I've said it a number of times in Jeremiah, we continue to see this, that humility is a hallmark of Christian maturity. Not boasting, not external conformity, not living up to certain religious external standards, not praying loud prayers, not announcing what you gave to the Lord. Judah was spiritually immature in doing all of these things and recognizing that their hearts were far from God. One of the clearest expressions of this was the idolatry. They had become delusional. The word delusion is even used here, but even if it weren't, you could see it, how this Cozying up to the world opens the door for delusion to to worship things that are made out of wood and stone. Now, for us, when we hear the word idolatry, we might be tempted to think of some ancient pagan practice. But idolatry is alive and well in our own day. We, We face our own idols. We deal with our own junk. The things that we adore, the things that we love, the things that control us, A good indicator of where an idol is, is your emotive response when that thing is affected. Anger often shows us where our idols are. Other emotional outbursts often reveal what has become an idol to us. That is something that we love more than God, that we put our confidence and trust in more than God. And when it's rattled a little bit, we show it. And so this sermon of Jeremiah, this closing of the temple sermon... It, it, it applies to us in our own day, even though we may not have trinkets on our, on our hearths or on our tables, we still have our idols. So Jeremiah in verse 1 announces his sermon, that it is a word from God. This is a, a thing that Jeremiah repeatedly does to remind the people, this is not my message, this is not my blog post, this is God's word, I'm his prophet, I'm his mouthpiece, I'm his, spoke, uh, his spokesman. And he addresses it to the house of Israel, which is one of the covenant names of Israel. It's designed to make them or remind them know who they are, that they belong to God. In this first part of the sermon, there are four sections. And you may have noticed the, the responsiveness of these sections where uh, the, the, the character of the true God is juxtaposed against this, uh, uh, these idols that they worshipped. The first exhortation, verses 2 to 7, is that they learn not from the nations. Specifically, the way that they look to their idols and their superstitions. There they would look to the skies 
to, to know what the future held. They were looking to the stars. Uh, he calls these customs vanity, meaningless, the word that we've seen Jeremiah use before. In other words, it's, it, it means nothing. It, it matters nothing. It's simply, uh, it's simply something that someone has come up with, but it has no power in it. And then he talks about how an idol is made, not to explain it. I mean, it almost sounds like a documentary. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. I mean, you can almost see an episode of how it's made, right? And the, the narrator going along with the documentary. But that's not his point, to simply explain how an idol's made. His point is to mock. This is what you're worshiping. Go out, cut a tree down, take an axe and shape it. And that's what you put your confidence in? These so-called gods, they start out as trees, they're formed with a tool, and then they have to be fastened so they don't fall over. He continues the mockery. These idols are like scarecrows in a field. You take some clothing, some straw, and try and fashion something that will, what, scare a few birds away? They can't speak. They have to be carried. They cannot walk, verse 5 says. They're powerless. They can't communicate on their own. They are dolls, toys to be played with, childish, imaginary fantasy in these trinkets that have no control over life and nature. So Jeremiah says to them, Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. John McKay, one commentator, writes of this. This is a mirrorism. Uh, it's, it's a figure of speech that, that, that takes two extremes and puts them together to show that there's nothing in between either. They can't do good or evil or anything in between. It's Jeremiah's way of saying they can do nothing at all. This is what the people have begun to say of God. Zephaniah, who was a uh, contemporary of Jeremiah, said of this in Zephaniah 1.12, the, the people said, the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Now, we've seen the people say something like this earlier. They were saying it in relation to the fact that they had the temple and the practices, so they thought they were safe. Like, we're God's people. He's not going to touch us. You know, we're, we're, we're good. But, but they went on. Their delusion carried them on to, to saying things like, God doesn't have power. It's these idols that have power. That's, that's where sin takes us to where we begin to put confidence. And if you think that we can't do this, we can. Think of what we put our confidence in. What we put our confidence in is revealed in what we worry about the most. Do we worry about the stock market? Political realm? What's going on in education or in the media? What gets our blood pressure good and going? That shows us where in our hearts we're putting our confidence. I'm not saying that we can't be concerned about what's happening in the world. But for many of us, it's a temptation. And I say many of us. I'm including myself in this. It is a temptation to become consumed by what's happening in the world because I think somehow, in the back of my mind, my hope is in this world. That's what it reveals. And it's not. These are our own forms of idols. And where it takes us is delusion. It's where it always takes people. We see this all the way back in Jeremiah's day. But there is none like God. That's Jeremiah's point. That's his overarching message to this part of the sermon. There is none like God. Quit being tr- looking at these trivial things. Quit worrying about things that are going to pass away. Quit putting hope in stuff that is going to change tomorrow. There is none like you, O Lord, 
You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. You think you know power? You think you know wisdom expressed in the things of this world? But there is nothing like our true God. Today, idolatry exists, as I said, in the realm of politics. It's in academia. It's in media and entertainment, including sports. It's in classism. People express their superiority and th- through their ideologies. They find confidence in their theories that they demand are facts. Less and less are ideas exchanged in our culture, and more and more is conformity demanded. The wisest people in our society, the wisest by the world's standards, do not possess the wisdom, not to mention the glory, of the God who created everything. He alone is worthy of fear and honor. Everyone else who is awed in this world, everyone we're tempted to admire and put our hope in, will die and will be no more. But our God lives forever. The second exhortation in verses 8 to 13 shows that no amount of dressing up our idols give them any more, change what they in essence are. I mean, here the picture is of wood or stone uh, with the best, finest gold and silver. mentions gold and silver from particular places. It was the best of the best. You know, you dress something up, it doesn't change what it is. It made me think of Proverbs 11.22, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. The kids, when they were growing up, had this CD, and it had a song about this, about Isabel the pig, that you could dress Izzy up, but you couldn't take her out because a pig is a pig is a pig. And the point here is that you, you, you can't change what something is by putting a gold ring on it. What does a pig do? A pig returns, like a dog returns to its vomit, a pig returns to the mire, goes back to the mud, and a pig's going to go back to the mud. And soon the gold ring's going to be covered in mud. You can't dress up a fool in a robe and a crown and call him a king. You can't hang a stethoscope around a fool and make her a doctor. Dressing up anything, and I'm speaking metaphorically here, right? I think that's where, if you take this passage and understand it only with little trinkets like pagan idolatry, you're going to miss what is here for us. It's what we're doing with our ideas and the things that possess power in our world, the things in which we put our confidence You can put all the best gold or silver on a wooden figurine, again metaphorically, but it doesn't give the idol any ability or power. He calls them stupid and foolish, verse 8. Products, the hands of people. In other words, you fashioned this, you made this stuff with your hands and then just say it's so. Think back through history. Think back through recent history. How many things have been called fact that have, through time and history, been revealed to be false? This is what we do. And such ideologies and isms have been used throughout history. Go back and look throughout time and see how these things have been used to oppress people. It's interesting that whenever ideas and isms, ideologies and isms are used, particularly in nation states to oppress people, they always ensure that the people in power gain more power and usually financial prosperity as well. Are we tempted to put our confidence in these things? Yeah, we are. We think that at times there are certain ideas, certain theories, maybe certain people who will deliver us out of whatever it is that we 
consider a heartache. But just because we call something powerful or say something is true doesn't make it so. That privilege belongs to God alone. He is the creator and the one who reigns over all. The Lord is true, verse says. The Lord is, uh, uh, verse 10 says, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Third point in verses 11 to 13, or third part of the exhortation, he takes a statement from the culture that the people would have likely known, and he uses it to make a point about the futility of idols. Verse 11, we don't get to see this in English, but it was written in Aramaic. It's the only, everything else is in Hebrew, so it kind of stands out. It's the only verse that's in Aramaic. And it's likely that Jeremiah did this because this is how the people knew the, the, the phrase, that they knew it in Aramaic. And we have our own you know, words and phrases that we use in our culture. Even though English is the predominant language, there are some words and phrases that are from other languages that we still use and that we know. Um, you know, something's bona fide, you know, it's, it's legitimate. Or modus operandi, the way somebody does something or the way a, a, a company does things, the normal way of doing things. Uh, Andy Griffith taught my children what case or sera, or Barney, I should say, taught uh, my kids what Kesarasara meant, the French phrase, whatever will be, will be. So Jeremiah is likely taking something that the people knew in Aramaic, a, a, a phrase or a, um, a statement that they knew that speaks of the futility of these lesser gods, and he uses it here in a way to drive this point home. And then in contrast, there's the true God who made everything according to his power, his wisdom, his understanding, verse 12. And as a result, he is the one who has total power over all things because he made them. He's, he has the power over nature. Nothing happens on its own. The people thought that their gods, and they prayed to their gods for changes in the weather system, for, for either you know, fertility for their, for their crops, you know, that they might uh, have more food or that they would not have the damage that comes with storms and so forth. But no trinket that they put on their shelf, had any power to change any of that. The fourth exhortation in verses 14 to 16 shows us how the delusion creeps in to worship something that has no breath in it at all. Jeremiah calls them all stupid, like the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. These idol makers, they're put to shame because the proof is in the pudding. What has an idol ever done? Nothing. Go back and look. You You can't find that an idol's ever done anything. It makes me think of the time that the, the uh, uh, it was a Dagon, that the, the, you know, the, the Philistine idol that kept falling over because they, they, they had the, 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 the Ark of the, of the, the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant. There we go. Uh, and, 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 and so they would walk in and the, and the, the, the idol fell over. Why? To show that it was powerless. And here, this is what the people are putting their confidence in. But there is no one like our God who formed all things. The Lord of hosts is his name, Jeremiah says. And then he calls God the portion of Jacob. Now, if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, you know that it's usually Israel or Jacob that's called God's portion. But here, Jeremiah flips it around. He does this in only one other place in chapter 51. And he turns this around to show the people that not only are they gods, but he is their God. He is our God, we are his people. That's the point that he's making here. This is linked back to when they came into the 
to the uh, promised land and the land was divided among the tribes and every tribe got a portion of land except for the tribe of Levi, the tribe of priests. They were told they would not receive a portion of land but that Yahweh would be their portion. And so here is expressed the idea of God calling to himself a kingdom of priests. That's what Israel was supposed to be, that he was their portion. It never was about the land any more than it was about you know, the, the physical stuff. All of this was designed to point to God, and they had missed it over and over again. They were not living like God's treasured possession, and instead had become like the world, like every other nation around them, you couldn't tell a difference. And so God is going to judge them. He's going to discipline them. Jeremiah tells them in verse 17 that they're going to have to grab everything up like a bundle from the ground. The idea is expressed here that you go in and you just grab what you can. You throw it on your bed mat and you wrap it up in a bundle because that's all you're going to have time to do. A few necessary things, maybe a few treasure possessions, but you're not going to get to pack your stuff. You're not going to get to take everything with you. When the Babylonians come, it's going to be all you can do to just grab up a bundle from the ground. Then the Lord describes the judgment of Judah being slung out like a slingshot. This was an image that they could understand, and again, a picture that they could grasp. We saw last week how God's judgment comes in the scattering effect, and this is a picture of the exile, that they're going to be slung out like a slingshot into exile. And then the, 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 the tone turns after verse 18, verse 19. Jeremiah begins speaking for the people. And he prays in response to how the people... He, he basically sets an example for them. He speaks how they should have been speaking. He prays how they should have been praying. Truly, this is my affliction, and I must bear it. He, he describes what how their hearts should have been broken and contrite, even though they weren't. And since they weren't, the judgment is going to come, and it's going to be utter desolation. This is why he said the tents are going to be destroyed, the ropes are going to be cut. You're not, you know, when a, when a tent got knocked down in the ancient Near East, you put it back up. But if your ropes were cut, you couldn't even put the tent back up. That's the picture that's being described here. And then he adds that the, 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 um, the leaders are stupid. They've, they've led the flock astray. The shepherds are stupid and do not inquire of the Lord. He not only calls them stupid, but he explains why they're so foolish. Why? Because they don't inquire of the Lord. They ignore God. They don't seek Him. They make their plans without seeking first the kingdom of God. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about this. Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. In other words, We make our plans, but we're not sovereign over the events. And so Jeremiah echoes this sentiment in verse 23, that when we ignore God, when we live like functional atheists, then we get on the wrong path. We are foolish not to inquire of the Lord. In verse 24, then, is a plea by Jeremiah for the Lord to preserve a remnant. Don't don't wipe us out completely, Jeremiah prays. And we know that there is a far-off hope that would come through the Redeemer. And so God would indeed preserve a remnant, a people for himself. The end closes with a call for the nations to be judged, those who have rejected Yahweh as the true God of all those who have oppressed Israel, and that will come as well. It's important to remind us in our own day that even though God has not put a halt 
to the evil in our world that he will one day judge it. No one will get away with their sin. And that brings us to the whole idea of what do we do with our sin? We either have to face a holy God, face the judgment ourselves, like is spoken of here, or we have to look to one who has taken that judgment for us, who has borne our wrath so that we don't have to face it, who has given us his righteousness, and that is what Christ has done. The challenge to not be conformed to the world is ongoing. This is one that we all battle with. Again, as I said before, it's the water we swim in. It's the world that we're in. We might be tempted to think, wouldn't it be nice if we just bought some land, built a compound, built a high wall, right? kept people out, and we were just all Christians and living together? Maybe you thought the monastic lifestyle would be something that would keep you from, from conforming to the world. But that's not what God's will is for us. And Jesus made this very clear in his high priestly prayer. That was the prayer he prayed for his disciples in his own day, but he also includes us in that prayer. He's praying for us as well. And he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. So there's, there's why we can't go build a commune. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Three things here. He prays for us not to be isolated. We're not to be segmented off to do our own thing. We're to be salt and light in the world. He prays, though, that we would be protected from Satan because he understands that he is a lion on the prowl. He prays that his word, third, would, would, would transform us, that is, sanctify us, to grow in grace and knowledge. It's from this high priestly prayer of Jesus that we get the phrase, in the world and not of it. This is where the idea comes from. It recognizes that we are not to intentionally isolate ourselves or intentionally act weird. As Christians, we're to be salt in the world. But yes, we are also different. And there are going to be things that we choose not to do, choose to separate from. There are also going to be things that we choose to do differently among ourselves. And Paul deals with this when he he addresses the same issue in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The renewal of the mind that leads to transformation happens as we are sanctified by the Spirit's work through His Word. So we're all in the process on this, and we're all in different places. Hopefully we can look back and see how the Lord has been doing this work. We're not who we were a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago, that kind of thing. That we are actually growing in grace, and as we do so, we're able to discern more and more what God's will is, that is, how we should live as a result of who God is. It's interesting, in the very next verse in Romans 12, he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So again, a mark of Christian maturity is humility. Living soberly, according to the measure of faith that God has given us. Judah was full of pride. They had pride in the temple. They had pride in their sacrificial system and the religious heritage that they had. They might, we might even say they had pride in their theology. They thought they had it all right. They had no problem telling other people how to live. Pride should have been an indicator that this was not the case because God 
loves the, the humble, right? He gives preference to the humble. He, he hates the proud. They should have been, this should have been the, the warning light on the dash to say something's wrong when this pride crept up in their hearts. Because the next thing to happen as pride takes over in our hearts is that we become delusional. We start thinking that we have it all together. We start putting our confidence in things other than God. In other words, we start to worship idols. And we do have our own that we worship. We can become equally delusional as the people of Judah did. We can ignore what God's good, acceptable, and perfect will is for our lives. Again, to paraphrase Micah, you know what God wants from you. Be fair with others and show mercy and walk humbly with your God. Or we could consider the words of Jesus when the Pharisees asked, what is the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Or we could distill it even more. The words of Jesus from Matthew seven twelve: whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Humility. Humility expressed in fearing God and loving others by showing mercy is God's perfect will for us. It's only by grace that this sanctifying work takes place in our hearts through Jesus alone. It's not about our works. It's not about earning it. It's not about accomplishing it. It's not about mind over mattering it. It is about looking to Christ alone and recognizing that we are just sinners saved by grace. We don't have a leg to stand on. We don't have anything to be proud about. We've been rescued. That's it. We've been rescued. And we have been crowned with honor and glory that is given to us because of what Christ has accomplished. But it's not our own doing, so we can't take pride in it. We don't have a leg to stand on. And so pride should never be a part of our lives. We are to walk in humility. And the way that is expressed is fearing God and loving others. If that is true, and if we believe it, if we indeed think that Christ has accomplished it, that it is finished, then we should shift our eyes from the temporary things that are passing away and fix our eyes on our God who is like no other, our Savior, Jesus Christ, the author and our finisher of our faith. May we do so today. Let's pray. Father, idolatry is such a tricky thing because we we don't have stuff on our shelves, but we've got all kinds of stuff in our hearts, and our hearts are tricky things to understand. They're deceitful. They lead us astray. We need you, Lord, to work through your, your, your your sanctifying work through your word by your spirit today. Would you do that? Would you show us where we are putting our confidence in other things? Lord, our desire is to know what is good and pleasing and acceptable to you, to do it, to live our lives as unto you, but we can't in our own power and our own strength. And so would you, would you make us humble? Would you show us that we have nothing to put our pride in? And we pray that humility would then be expressed in fearing and loving you, and loving others as ourselves. Do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.